AAA Sky, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Today, Stanley and I are discussing photographing space shuttle launches with Stan Honda. I'm Maggie Machinsky. And I'm Stanley Furtick. AAA Sky is produced by the Amateur Astronomers Association of New York, whose mission is to promote the study of astronomy and to emphasize its cultural and inspirational value. Find out more about AAA at aaa.org. First, here's a word from our president, Brian Berg. Hello and welcome to episode two of season two of the AAA podcast. I am Brian Berg, the president of the Amateur Astronomers Association of New York, and thank you as always for coming and listening to our podcast. Before we get going into the podcast, I just wanted to remind everyone to go and check out our fantastic new website, at AAA.org, where you will be able to see everything that the organization does. And I hope that all of you have seen the heavy press coverage and maybe even came out and attended our new Sculpts and Library program. This is a really dynamite program, which was actually even spearheaded by a teenage member of AAA. We couldn't be more proud of all of our members for everything that they do. And we now loan telescopes through the Brooklyn Public Library. Hopefully, we'll be able to expand this program, but that's right. Scopes, telescopes, can now be lent out just like books. We are truly trying to spread the love and enjoyment of astronomy to everybody. Of course, we have our classes, our astrophotography meetups, our monthly lecture series, eyepiece, our monthly newsletter, which everybody is open to submit an article for. And since I mentioned astrophotography, I think you're all going to be blown away by this month's podcast featuring Stan Honda, who is our resident astrophotography expert. Stan has even taken pictures of the space shuttle when it was launched at Cape Canaveral. This is a truly, truly inspiring and fascinating interview, and I hope that you all enjoy it as much as I do. With that said, AAA Sky Team, take it away. Welcome everyone for this week's episode. My guest has made a career as a photographer for the Agence France Press, which is the French Associated Press. For 34 years, he covered a wide range of topics from politics, economics, sports, and human interests. During this time, he got to photograph the space shuttle program, which is what we're gonna get into today. His personal projects include publishing a book called Moving Walls in which he and writer Sharon Yamato documented the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. San has also been a artist in residence in seven national parks. He has had photos featured by NASA's astronomy photo of the day eight times. He is a member of the AAA, which is where I got to meet him. His work has been featured by the New York Times, USA Today, NationalGeographic.com, Sky and Telescope, and he has a very famous photo that is hanging in the 9-11 Memorial Museum. So if you're lucky enough to visit the 9-11 Museum, you can check that out. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, without further ado, my friend and mentor, Stan Honda. Stan, how are you doing? All right, Maggie, pretty good. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for joining me. So Stan, people get to photograph a wide range of topics um, the reason I know you is obviously through AAA, we have an astronomy and astrophotography connection. 
but very few people, you are the only person that I know, very few people get to photograph rockets. So take us through your career path and tell us how you got to be able to photograph these monumental events. Well, I've been pretty lucky. My background is in photojournalism. Uh, I didn't actually study that in college. Uh, I studied psychology, but then I worked at a campus newspaper. And so I really liked doing the photography and sort of seeing current events. Uh, and after college, uh, I started working with smaller papers in San Diego. That's where I grew up. And then after, uh, I, then I kind of kept graduating to larger and larger papers. So then I worked for the big metropolitan daily newspapers in San Diego and in Los Angeles. Uh, and in 1989, I got a job with New York Newsday uh, out here in New York. So my wife and I moved to, to New York City and I worked at Newsday for a few years until the, the, the edition was actually closed. Uh, I did some uh, freelance work for a lot of different media companies in, in New York City. And then I was hired by Agency France Press to work in the New York City Bureau. And for me, the photography, the photojournalism part was, was really interesting. Every day was different. So we got to shoot different kinds of subjects, different topics every day. And with AFP, I kind of inherited this job of coordinating the space shuttle coverage of the launches and the landings uh, for about five years. So in in that respect, I'm really, really fortunate uh, to be able to, to do something like that. Uh, I, as a kid, I was always really interested in astronomy and, and also the space program. I watched all, a lot of the launches uh, from, from, I think, Gemini, Gemini, Apollo, the moon landings, the moonwalks and all that stuff. So I was really big into the, into the manned space program. Uh, and then with a with AFP, I was actually able to cover some of the space shuttle program and actually see a rocket launch. I'd never actually seen seen a rocket launch. Um, the first uh, uh, the first shuttle story that I actually worked on, unfortunately, was the crash of the Columbia. So I was Aww. just just starting with AF as a staff photographer with AFP, and they sent me to to Dallas and. Then uh, I, I drove to a place called Nagadoches, Texas, which I never even knew existed until, until the shuttle crash. That was one of the areas, the middle part of the area where the debris field was. So uh, we were based there. And uh, for about a week and a half, I, I went all around uh, the eastern part of Texas into Louisiana and uh, would see pieces of the shuttle. So that was pretty disheartening to see something yeah. like that. Uh, and then... I think it was maybe a year and a half or so later when they when they resumed the flight, uh, maybe two years after the after the crash when they when they resumed flight, and that's that's when I started a lot of the um, uh, regular coverage of the of the space shuttle launches. Okay, so now how does this work? Agence France Press sends you to cover this, and then what happens when you land on the ground? Take us take us through the process. Are you in contact with representatives of NASA? What kind of clearance do you have to have? How do you get to choose your location? Take us through that process. Your feet are on the ground. Yeah, the, the actual clearance starts before the, the trip. You have to have a credential issued by NASA uh, before you get there. And it has to be approved and everything. And it was actually a very tough credential to get because there's, uh, as you can imagine, a fair amount of security sure. involved. And some people were even saying that the NASA security 
was harder than a lot of the government issued uh, passes that they would get. I, as a wire service photographer, I knew a lot of people both from my company, AFP, but also from AP, the Associated Press and Reuters and a lot of the companies that cover the big politics in Washington, D.C. So they're, they're covering the White House and Congress and State Department and all that. And, and they said the NASA one was really kind of hard to get. I know a lot of photographers, both from AFP and from AP, the Associated Press and Reuters, and they cover a lot of big of the big institutions in Washington, D.C., like the White House and Congress and the State Department. And, and they said it was, it was it was hard to get the NASA credentials. So once we're cleared for that, then I can make arrangements to uh, for uh, to travel to Florida and I would fly into Orlando. That's that's the closest big airport and then drive out to uh, the Kennedy Space Center. So the first time I did that, it was kind of this amazing thing because I'm thinking, wow, I'm, dri- I'm driving to the Kennedy Space Center. And from a from a distance, you see the vehicle assembly building, which is the largest, I think the largest by volume building in the world. And I remember just seeing pictures of that everywhere, Life Magazine and on TV, and of course, all the coverage of the launches everywhere. You see the vehicle assembly building, this huge thing. And from a distance, it's like on the horizon, you see it. Uh, and then it, and then as you as you get get closer, it gets it obviously gets big, bigger and bigger. And then uh, at, at at some point, it's just this enormous thing because the Florida that area of Florida is just completely flat. And of course, there's right. nothing. There's very little development there. It's just the space center, Kennedy Space Center, and then Cape Canaveral, which is the Air Force base part of that that area. And so, except for the the launch pads and administrative buildings, there's really no tall buildings there. And here's this vehicle assembly building. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger as you drive close to it. And then it's it's this enormous thing. It's just it's just pretty pretty amazing. So. To me, that was pretty cool. I mean, being as a kid, I, I was really big into the band space program, and then here I am driving onto the grounds of, of Kennedy Space Center. So, so that was pretty neat. Um, I, I learned a huge amount about photography, how to cover uh, launches, rocket launches, and landings. We also covered the space shuttle landing, uh, and just how to do all this stuff. It's a it's a particular kind of photography, and I had never done it before. Uh, so I had all these questions for the people that I worked with, worked beside, worked beside, and just learned a huge amount. Uh, AFP had a, a freelance photographer based in Titusville, which is the nearest town to the Kennedy Space Center, and uh, Bruce Weaver, and he would help quite a bit uh, as as uh, I got to know him. Uh, and also the other photographers from the other agencies, from AP Reuters. Uh, there's a uh, agency called European. Uh, press photo agency. They they would um, they had a lot of tips how how to do things. So I would I would ask tons of questions, and uh, and the usually I would arrive uh, about three days before uh, the actual launch. Okay. And then there's all this jargon with which which I think for a lot of people was pretty cool. So everybody wants to learn all the NASA jargon. It's it's all acronyms. They could, no one can ever speak in a complete sentence. It's all <laughs> completely acronyms. It's pretty funny. Uh, but at, uh, so L minus three is launch minus three days. So everything's like, okay. and of course that you've heard like uh, T minus one minute and counting. That's, that's like, uh, once you get within 24 hours, it's, it's T minus 23, 22, et cetera. And then, so L minus three is launch minus three days. So three days out, uh, 
uh, I arrived and usually the astronauts would arrive then. And so it was kind of cool. You, they would, the ones that could fly would fly these T-38 trainer, training um, jets. And so there's usually, I think there's two seats so they could fly another astronaut. So they would kind of fly from Houston to Kennedy Space Center and, and then land there, fly their own jets. Uh, and then some, sometimes the entire crew would fly on a, I think it was a converted uh, Gulfstream private jet and with the NASA logo on the tail. So that was kind of cool, cool to see. And they come out in their blue, the blue, those blue pilot suits they had. And then uh, they'd, they'd come out and they'd say a few things. Each astronaut would say a few things. And then uh, they'd be posed for pictures. And then they get into, a, I think, a big van and they drive to the astronaut, uh, uh, the housing area. So you're there three days prior. And these things often don't go off without a hitch. I mean, there's weather delays, there's mechanical delays. Um, what would you say on average, how many times would these things go off as planned? Yeah, uh, that, that's, that was always the fear of uh, either, well, it's weather or, or, yeah, or technical difficulties. So uh, weather was always a huge concern because in, in Florida, I, I don't know why they chose Florida as a launching <laughs> site because <laughs> there's, there's weather constantly, right. um, especially during this, during the summer. Um, the, the better times to go were actually, I remember there was a I think January or February launch. It was very mild down there. So coming from New York, it was great. Uh, but I think, there, there were, uh, I think, a few missions where the uh, there was no, there were weren't any problems, no weather, okay. no technical problems, and then there were a lot of there were a lot of missions where that that I would leave the space center and have to come back because they, the the launch would been would be delayed more than a few days, and uh, if it was more than a few days, I would have to go back to New York and then return to Florida. Uh, sometimes it'd be delayed by 24 hours, and then I would stay, uh, for, stay for the launch. Oh, uh, the, and the worst would be a kind of a delay during the final countdown. As, oh. as I found that the morning of the launch was very, very critical because I think about six hours, maybe seven hours before launch is when they would start loading the fuel into the fuel tanks of the of the main. Uh, the, the big the big orange fuel tank held right. liquid oxygen and liquid uh, hydrogen and so those tanks would be would be filled uh, and there there were often problems with valves and sensors and things like that so uh, usually it was hard to sleep the night before a launch especially if it were say a, a morning launch because you'd be uh, I would wake up in the middle of the night sometimes about three in the morning if it were say a 10 a.m launch and turn on the TV, turn on NASA TV because the hotel got NASA TV. And if you saw the, the, the shuttle on the pad and, and there was some steam coming out the side, then everything was good because that means that the fuel is being loaded and the liquid oxygen uh, would kind of sublime off to the side in this steam. So if you saw the steam, you know that the fuel was being loaded. I don't know how you slept at all. I, I think even if the launch was at 2 p.m., I wouldn't sleep. I would be like a, a kid on, on Christmas Eve. That's incredible. The very first launch, I don't think, I, I think I kept waking up. Well, I, I, I worry a lot when I, when I shoot, some, shoot, shoot a, uh, something that is big, like a big story or, or some, a technical thing that I had never shot before. And, and there, was, there was a lot to worry about. So I, I thought, God, is this working? Is, do I have all my stuff? Is the batteries charged? Do I have all yep. the 
camera just things like that and so i kept waking up and then checked the tv fuel was being loaded and so um uh so there was that um so while we're on this path why don't we talk about equipment because you mentioned that you had no idea how to photograph this you're being thrown into the fire so to speak i consider myself a pretty seasoned astro photographer i would have no clue where to begin if i'm photographing a rocket launch or landing yeah, the the so I, I asked various people who had done this, and they said, "Well, what what do I take down there? What kind of equipment do I take?" And it's basically uh, the, most photojournalists kind of have a, a kit of of wide angle to moderate telephoto lenses, and then you 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 might have one long telephoto, like a four hundred millimeter or six hundred millimeter. So they said, "Take take one long lens, four hundred or six hundred millimeter, and then the rest of your normal equipment, which is usually two bodies, and I think I usually would carry three wide, uh, zoom lenses from a fourteen to twenty four millimeter zoom, a twenty four to seventy, and a seventy to two hundred. So that covers all the focal lengths from super wide to 200 millimeter telephoto. And then I would carry uh, usually two or three camera bodies. And then back then we were using the Nikon uh, D4 cameras and the D3 cameras. And then I would carry a 400 millimeter uh, 2.8 lens, which is a pretty big lens. Yeah, and huge. at that point, yeah. And at that time, Nikon made a uh, teleconverter that had a 1.7 conversion factor. Uh, the popular ones are 1.4 and, and a 2x converter. This is 1.7. So it's a kind of a bizarre uh, number, but uh, it turned a 400 millimeter into a, I think it was a 680 millimeter, uh, about a F5, uh, like a 6, F6.3 lens, uh, which was turned out to be a pretty good focal length for, for shooting from the uh, uh, the live position that you were allowed to shoot at, uh, because they said that the the shooting position was at the media center at Kennedy Space Center, which was three miles from the launch pad. Okay. So you, which is the closest a human being could be to the launch pad. A civilian. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. so we were. Um, uh, they said you're three miles from the launch pad, but you don't you don't necessarily need to be have a super telephoto lens that'll just get the space shuttle because you kind of want a wider picture of the, uh, the launch pad to get the, get the um, smoke and steam uh, coming up and that, that makes for a better picture. So, so that combination of camera equipment worked well. Uh, uh, and then there's, uh, I, I guess I could talk a little bit about doing these uh, uh, remote camera setups as well. Sure. Uh, in addition to the, the live position where we were allowed to shoot from uh, the photographers were allowed to put up re remote controlled cameras closer to the launch pad within uh, sometimes within a quarter mile. Sometimes at, at, at the very, the last three missions, we are actually allowed to put cameras uh, within about a couple hundred feet of the, of the actual launch pad. We were within this perimeter fence that usually no one was allowed. And so that was kind of cool to <laughs> see the shuttle that close um, and the, by remote control, I, I just mean a, a camera that's uh, it, all of our cameras had these uh, sound uh, triggers that were triggered by loud noises, which is at that at that close to the spatial, the, the once the engine lights, that's a pretty loud noise. And so that would uh, trigger the camera as as long as the noise is on, the camera would continuously fire and, until the noise level dropped. And by that time, the, the shuttle was out of the picture anyway. And so it was kind of is a fairly simple way to to uh, to get 
uh, a camera very close to the shuttle with uh, with not long with not uh, not a very long focal length lens, and and then get a, a good series of pictures where probably one or two of them were uh, work out the best. That was actually most of the time that we would spend. We'd spend the day, the second day I was there, the L minus two, the two days before the launch, where uh, we actually scout out our, the positions that we w- would want to put a, uh, a remote camera. Uh, and so we would put a tripod down to, to save a spot because there were some, some spots that were very popular for, uh, for the wire service photographers. And um, there were, uh, for all the new services like AFP, AP Reuters, and this uh, European Press Photo Agency and Getty Images, uh, and also the the NASA people uh, and some of the contract photographers work for the contractors. We were actually allowed to go anywhere on the base to put a camera uh, at Kennedy Space Center. So that was kind of amazing when I found out about that. Uh, each organization uh, would have a driver and a van uh, because the NASA had a, a whole uh, public relations wing that uh, was active since the early 60s. So they would just kind of churn out information, help the news media with questions, answers, things like that. And they actually uh, were pretty good to the photographers. Um, There were these uh, retired Apollo engineers who actually worked on the the moon landing program, who retired to the area, uh, to one of the towns in that area, like Titusville, or I think there was a town actually called Jupiter and things like that. Uh, but they kind of still wanted to be in, in contact with the space program, with NASA people. So they volunteered to help with the public relations people because they were always they already had all the security clearances you need. And they they knew their way around the base pretty well. So they were great. Uh, they were great guides because the media, when you, you couldn't leave the media center, which is actually essentially across this little road from the vehicle assembly building uh, as a me- man member of the media. You couldn't leave that area unless you were leaving the base uh, and you couldn't uh, you couldn't drive your own car on the, on a road to get toward the launch pad, you had to have an escort. And so these were our escorts, these retired guys. And we had a really pretty, pretty good one. And so uh, we, they would supply a van for this guy to drive and we pile all our equipment in, and then we go to each site uh, with, with, with the van. So on the, the second day before the launch, we would put the tripod down and then return to our um, work area and as- assemble all the remote stuff because it was a matter of, of uh, uh, it was kind of interesting that Bruce had constructed these boxes, I think, out of a- an open box where you could uh, you could screw in two cameras, one shooting horizontal, one shooting vertically. And then uh, we could put the sound triggers inside this box and the box would protect it from the weather. Because you just, oh, okay. at, at any point in time in Florida, a, a thunderstorm could just break out. So you, you had no idea. A lot of people would wrap the cameras in plastic. And then, of course, you, you had to remember at the final check for your camera, you had to remember to take peel the plastic away from the front of your lens. Sure. Otherwise, you'd be shooting through a piece of plastic, which you probably don't want to do. These boxes were nice because we could put a lens hood on the camera on the lens to protect the front of the lens but the box would kind of shield the whole camera we wouldn't have to wrap it in plastic really and in fact they survived a couple of pretty heavy downpours uh which which was always surprising that was always another big worry is that you uh the then the next day 
at L minus one, one day, be 24 hours before launch, we would uh, they would allow us to actually set the cameras uh, out on the tripods. So we'd go, uh, they would gather at, seven, I think about, at about dawn, which is usually around seven, 6.30, 7 a.m. And they would allow us to go out there and you had most of the day, sometimes there'd be a, they would set a deadline where you had to be finished, but you had most of the day and you'd set your camera out there. And once it's set, then that that's it. Once you leave the camera, you there, you can't come back and, and, and check it. Like you can't come back an hour before launch and check it. So that was another thing to worry about because here, here's your camera sitting in the middle of a swamp in Florida, mosquitoes going all around and it's, it's, it's 90 degrees and 90% humidity. And then a thunderstorm comes and drenches the whole area. So you're kind of worried that maybe a connection is loose or got wet or something like that. How do you ensure your battery doesn't run out? Well, the, uh, since it was just for 24 hours after a while, the battery would, would, the camera would essentially go to sleep, but okay. it would, it would be active. And then, um, once the, uh, the, the trigger, uh, the sound trigger, what, once it detects the sound, it sends a pulse it, it, because it's it's sending the pulse to trigger your camera, uh, and that'll wake up the camera. You might miss the very first frame, but then that that that's not too crucial, and then the camera will wake up and start shooting. And since the, since your camera will be there, well, a maximum of, of 24 hours, then uh, it, what if your camera's just you could leave your camera on for 24 hours if you're not shooting anything, it really won't use much power. And so Stan Honda, the nicest, most humble guy I know, is out there throwing bows, trying to secure his tripod spot down. How uh, is there a, a seniority level? I mean, how do you get to place your tripod and how do you secure your tripod? Yeah, the, uh, there, there was sort of a, uh, a seniority thing, but usually it was sort of like if you get there first, then you claim the spot. Okay. And uh, I, I, I let Bruce take take a couple of the good spots because he he had been around much longer than me with that group of photographers. And so I, I just let him fight it out with the <laughs> with, with people. And uh, there, there was only a couple of spots where uh, there, there was a good uh, there was a good angle over some water. And so what you got, the picture was shooting through some of the plant life uh, the, uh, in this. Basically, it's a swamp. And with the light from the uh, flame of the engine, you could get it reflected in this uh, water in, fr in front of the camera. So that was a pretty, pretty nice shot. But I, I did that, I think, on one or two missions. And then Bruce, Bruce usually did that. Uh, the other positions were just a matter of uh, they were fairly open. And usually there might be two or three other photographers there. And it was, again, it was such a huge area that uh, unless there was some sort of specific foreground object, which there there generally was just swampy area. Okay. And um, we we tried to pick a couple areas with water because that always makes for a nice reflection shot for something uh, like like the space shuttle uh, because you have this flame that that's that's brighter than the sun, and so that yeah. that's going to you know that's going to reflect. Uh, the good part is that you kind of know exactly where the picture is because the it's the the shuttle rocket will launch from the launch pad. It's not like it's moving around or anything and it's just going to go straight up. So you, you have a kind of an idea how you want to visualize your picture and how you want to set which lens you want to use and all that. 
And not, not that it, it was easy, but it was just, uh, uh, you had an idea of where the action was going to happen. So, so you didn't really need to guess too much on that. Uh, and, and so, uh, and then like, like any other kinds of photography, one idea was to try to go basically drive around and look at different angles and say, oh, is this going to make a good angle? Is this going to make a good angle? Another thing to take into consideration was exactly when the launch was going to happen. Is it a morning launch, an afternoon launch? There were night launches, which the first night launch terrified me because I, because I thought, I mean, it's hard enough shooting it during the daytime. So I think I asked five different people eight times each, what is the exposure for this? Because you're, you're thinking, ah, it's at night. I mean, you gotta, you gotta uh, open up the settings and all that. And, and uh, this great photographer, Red Huber from the Orlando Sentinel, who shot every single shuttle launch in the entire program wow he worked, he worked for the orlando sentinel so the uh, another great nasa acronym acronym is uh shuttle transport system that was the official name of the space shuttle uh, okay sts so each mission had a number uh the final mission was sts 135 is the 135th mission of the space shuttle program so red shot sts1 and continued for the next 134 missions to shoot every single launch. And I think every single landing, I don't think he missed a landing. Well, a landing that was in, in Florida. So he was like the God of, of all of the space shuttle photographers, I think. What an incredible career. I'm yeah, jealous. Yeah. And talk about a nice guy. I mean, he makes me sort of look like uh, I'm crazy. He was very, very nice. <laughs> Uh, always answered questions. I go, Red, what's the, what's the exposure here? <laughs> and he's, and he said, like, it's, it's basically a daytime exposure. He says, don't, don't vary from that or you're, you're screwed. <laughs> and so, because, and he was right because the, the, obviously the, a rocket flame, it, it's not going to vary. It's right. same, same rocket, the, the, the main engines, the two boosters, solid rocket boosters, and they're all going to fire at the same time at the same brightness. So, uh, and the only real picture at night is really close to the launch pad as the reflection from this light reflects off the steam and the smoke coming up. So he said, uh, he said, don't overexpose your picture or you'll, you'll, you'll be dead. You won't have a picture. So they, there's this, there's this uh, kind of an instinct to do something else, but you have to fight against this instinct to, to, to follow the instructions, because if you follow the instructions, you'll get a picture. And if you don't, if you, if you think you know what you're doing, you're, you won't get a picture. And so that was, that was the, a great lesson to, uh, to get from Red and the other photographers at, uh, during for the night launch. And so now for our listeners, myself included, that are photographers, out of curiosity, what are your typical settings for a launch? Well, the daytime was was fairly uh, easy. I don't mean easy, but but uh, fairly straightforward because it was whatever the a daytime exposure uh, would be. And the Florida sun is very very bright. I mean, it's much brighter than I was used to in, in New York. Uh, if it were if it were a cloudless day or or the sun was shining pretty brightly, I would always have to wear sunglasses uh, outside, and because it was just so bright out there. So, so I think a typical setting, I think might be like, uh, let's see at ISO 200, uh, a, a daytime setting might, might be, uh, 500 at F 11, for example. Okay. Uh, so it, it might, might be actually about with, with the, how bright it is and, 
the shuttle, of course, is the the uh, the transport. The orbiter is is white. Mm-hmm. Uh, the big tank is 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 orange. The uh, solid rocket boosters are white. So might be around f- five hundred at f sixteen. So a thousand at f eleven. Uh, and then that's what the if it, if it's bright sun. Of course, if it's cloudy, you, you adjust the exposure a, a, a little bit because again, it's the the you have to kind of take into account the the flame from the from the rocket because once the shuttle lifts off the launch pad, a lot of the picture is this flame com- coming out of both the main engines and the uh, mainly mainly the solid rocket uh, b- boosters. Because uh, a lot of the main engine flame is is uh, essentially it's a gas flame, so it's mm-hmm. it's like your gas stove. So it's 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 not a very big flame, and, uh, and so the you had to take uh, take the ambient light I- I- into account. And then at night it was sort of the same. I mean, maybe we would shoot uh, five hundred at eleven uh, or or uh, five hundred. Uh, yeah, at, at eleven, maybe at ASA at ISO four hundred. So okay, uh, and so that that would be sort of a uh, adjusting a little bit for for night and for night. trying trying to get that picture toward toward the bottom uh, as it as it lifts off from the uh, from the launch pad. And so you're trying to manage all these settings. You've talked to people. Your very first rocket launch, did you nail it? Because not only are you you're you have a very personal vested interest in this, but you're also getting paid. So you have to produce. Did you nail the shot? Yeah, I, I, I got a picture. The first, very first launch was re- extremely nerve wracking because the, one of the positions that we were allowed to shoot from was the roof of the vehicle assembly building. And so wow. that was just an amazing uh, place to see it from because you're, you're elevated. I think it's something like 350 feet high or something like that. So in, in a place like Florida with the heat, uh, especially if it's, if it's a late, late morning launch or an afternoon launch, just the, the heat coming off of the landscape can cause heat waves in the, in the picture. If you're shooting from ground level and from the top of the VAB, you were kind of above some of that interference. And so the, the picture you got was much clearer. The very first launch i was supposed to, i was with the group of photographers one uh, we were each organization was allowed to send one photographer so uh so i was going to be with this group and something got messed up in the in the chain of command and telling the vab people that there was going to be a whole bunch of media photographers and at, at like uh i don't know maybe 30 minutes 45 minutes before the launch they said you can't come up here <gasps> oh and no so, so especially like the veteran photographer going, holy crap, and they're yelling at the guy. Well, not, our, <laughs> not the guy, the, the people in the in the VAB, and they're saying, what, what are you talking about? We're still, we're still have this cleared and all that. And so, so the our guy says, so we got to scr- we got to scramble. Where do you guys want to go? He's asking the 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 veterans guy. So because uh, he said we got to go now. We got to get to a sp- we got to get to a position. And sure. and so so they said, oh, there's there's like a a. a a VIP launching or launching site or something or a viewing site. So they go, go to the VIP site. So we go pile back in the vans with our, with our equipment, big lenses, tripods and everything like that. And then we go to this second position. And I mean, we literally made it maybe had 10 minutes to set up and that, that is, that's not how I like to <laughs> set up for a, an important uh, shoot. So we're putting all this stuff together. And then I remember the, 
uh, settings and all that stuff. And you, you see the launch. And of course, you, you got one chance. It's like the launch goes and it goes, <laughs> whether you're ready or not. Uh, and but so I I managed to get uh, get get some pictures, and it was it was sort of fun to look at these pictures that you that 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 I took, and it's like wow, this is like I got to actually see see a rocket launch. Yeah, not the way that I would want to shoot that either, especially on my my first launch. No. Um, of all the rocket launches, do you have a favorite launch, and do you have a favorite photo that you've taken? Oh, let's see. Uh, a favorite photo. Some of the remote camera pictures I, I like quite a bit because they're they're real close up. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, for the last three launches, for a, a couple of the angles, I was I used a fifty millimeter lens on a full frame camera, so uh, I was able to get the launch kind of the launch gantry, the the shuttle lifting off, the smoke coming coming the steam and smoke coming from from around the bottom of the shuttle. So th- those pictures I think were very nice because they're up close, they're pretty close, very much clearer, of course, than the positions that we were at because we were it's like shooting through three miles of atmosphere versus a few hundred feet away. Uh, and uh, we found a couple of nice areas that were real swampy where there was water in front and it kind of made a beautiful landscape picture. And then of course there's a space shuttle <laughs> rocket lifting off from there. Um, one of the more, probably the the most exciting moment for me was the last, uh, well, I guess a couple of them. Uh, one of them was on the on the. I was also also return after a launch after a successful launch. I'd come back to Orlando for the landing to shoot the landing, which a lot of people thought, oh, it's just the landing of the space shuttle. But to me, it was kind of neat because you you saw this basically a, a glider, huge glider without any engines coming landing, and then the same thing is they had one chance to land that orbiter and then and that was it so the skill of those astronauts was pretty amazing um and at some point the nasa allowed uh, one representative from the news services the wire services to be out on the tarmac when the astronauts came out uh to photograph that and and then you were the or the rules were then you had to share the pictures with ap reuters and i think epa uh to be fair with everybody and then that position would rotate and then uh we got to I got to shoot that a couple of times where you're actually out on the tarmac, you're in this big train of, of vehicles and ground crew going out after the shuttle lands. And, and then they, uh, they actually, they're, by the time you get there, they've gone into this kind of a, a big medical van. Uh, that's like a, a motor home that, that raises up to the level of the shuttle. They walk in and they get, they get looked at by a doctor. Because some, especially the civilians, were kind of wobbly sometimes when they come back from even a, a shorter mission, and then they then they would actually come out of that, and we'd be allowed to photograph them as they greeted the they were greeted by the NASA officials, and then and uh, then they would kind of everybody would walk around the the orbiter and look look at it. That was kind of a big thing, and I was I was photographing one where it was actually. Uh, it might have been Mark Kelly, who's now a senator in Arizona. Sure. His famous uh, twin brother astronauts, Scott Kelly, his mm-hmm. brother, was on the ISS for a year. And uh, there was a, a, a couple of the, of the uh, pieces of foam from the 
the main engine uh, fuel tank had, they had seen on the ca- high-speed cameras fell off and hit the shuttle. So it was similar to what happened to Columbia. So they were very afraid that there was any kind of damage. And from space, they didn't see any damage, I think from the ISS. And there was, but they they came back, and so they're looking uh, toward the area where they thought there was some damage, and there was sort of a big nick out of a couple of the of the tiles that were where the this uh, uh, frozen foam had had hit. So they were they were looking up at that, and uh, it was kind of interesting because you're I mean you're literally underneath the space shuttle as these guys are walking around the right crew walking around looking at it, and so. They, you, the, there was a mandatory briefing you had to go do before, and they said, they said, don't touch anything. <laughs> and so <laughs> they said, because from the, uh, as you're walking underneath the, the space shuttle, you can actually, uh, I was tall enough where I could, I could raise my hand up and probably touch a tile. They said, don't touch the, any of the tiles. And then, uh, then they said, because <laughs> uh, then you could also walk near the landing gear. And they said, don't touch the landing gear because the, the, the brakes would still be extremely hot. You can imagine that uh, there was a big parachute and brakes were the only thing that were, st- that were bringing the shuttle to a stop yeah. on, the, on the runway there. So they said, don't touch anything. And so, but it was kind of cool to be around there, uh, around the uh, landing strip when they, when they were uh, out of the shuttle. And then you saw, I mean, you, you saw this, the orbiter right literally up close. So that was pretty awesome, I thought. Uh, yeah, this has to be a—I mean—a highlight career moment for you and a dream come true, I imagine. Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. And then uh, the very last mission, STS-135, which is Atlantis, uh, and uh, it was the last mission of the whole space shuttle program. They had this before the launch, uh, usually about less than twenty-four hours before the launch. There's, if you see it on TV, there's kind of this gantry that covers up the orbiter part where they could access the, the crew compartment, but also the, the payload bay in case they need to uh, add uh, like a satellite or something like that, mm-hmm. right? They have to check on things. And uh, so that gets rolled back. It's a, it's a uh, rotating service structure, the RSS, another acronym. <laughs> as an okay. acronym. So the, the, there's this RSS rollback, and, and that was something we were allowed to photograph up close. They would take us up near the launch pad, and we could photograph it. as. And it's this very, very slow thing. It's sort of like this huge gantry, and it's going like one mile an hour as it opens up. So it, it's, uh, it takes about 30 minutes or so, but it's, it's all of a sudden, then, then, the, then the orbiter is exposed. So you, you see for the very first time, you see the space shuttle. So the last mission uh, during the daytime was when they had the RSS rollback. And they said, we, we're, we'll allow one photographer from the news media on top of the RSS structure to photograph it from the top. And so at AFP, it was our turn to be this, pool, what they, we call a pool possession. And so we, we had to share the things. And so they said, it's AFP's turn. Are uh, you kidding me? This is amazing. And, and so we're in this meeting with, the, with, the, with the, all the photographers and the NASA public relations people and the NASA photographer and... And so they said, uh, it's AFP's turn. Do you want to do it? Like, I'm going to say, <laughs> ah, no, I don't think so. So, uh, uh, so I said, I said, yes, <laughs> AFP will do it. Uh, and so it was, uh, I had an escort and uh, we, we take this, essentially you take all these elevators up. I think we took 
you take an elevator to a level, then you take another elevator, and, you, and you're you're going up the side of the space shuttle as you're going up to the top level, and it's just this just amazing sight. Because then, of course, that area of Florida is totally flat, so you you have this 360 degree view of everything, and we get on top of the RSS, the rotating service structure, and uh, and and I see a couple of friends, uh, Bill Ingalls, who's the head NASA photographer, and we have become pretty good friends, uh, and. Uh, a Scott, who was a photographer from Canon, who was who would do a lot of the technical stuff and, and help NASA out with the equipment and, and things like that. So, uh, so I knew a couple of the other people up there, and so we're looking we're looking down onto the space shuttle orbiter itself, and, and we're basically at the very top, almost at the very top level of the orange external fuel tank that bit the big orange thing. In fact, we were so close you could reach out and and touch the tank. And I said, I said, Bill, the Bill Ingalls, the NASA driver said, Bill I said, you could reach out and touch this thing. And he said, I wouldn't do that if I were you. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, so that was, it was pretty impressive. There were some, a few of the, uh, I think the contractors for NASA up there, uh, uh, they probably kind of won the lottery same way. And with, they said, hey, you want to go up top of the RSS and uh, when it when it rolls back, because I think a lot of propulsion people were up there. So they were, you look down as this gantry was moving back as you saw more and more of the space shuttle. So it was this pretty spectacular view of the, both the shuttle, the surrounding area of Florida, the whole launch complex. And it was, that was, to me, that was, that was pretty impressive to see that. Uh, and that was kind of a good way to end this whole, the, the, the whole coverage of the, of the space shuttle program. What an incredible ride. No pun intended. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I wish so, it would have been fun to go up on one. But. Yeah. So Stan, for my last question, I'm going to ask you about your favorite New York. This is a question we ask to all our guests. So what's your favorite thing about New York? It can be a place. It can be a restaurant. It can be right. a museum. Tell me about your favorite New York. Oh, favorite New York. Boy, I hadn't really thought much about that. Uh, to me, the, the I think it's the, the people I've been able to meet in okay. New York. Uh, I don't know if that's a, if it can be people or places. Sure, it's it just, can be anything. It's your favorite yeah. New York. Yeah. I mean, especially uh, when I was working with AFP, of course, it was the, a lot of photographers from the competing news services and the newspapers, but everybody seemed to get along pretty well. And it was fun to hang out with people like that. Uh, now it's really a, a lot of the people in the, in the AAA with the astrophotography group. I mean, you included and people like Preston and Chirag and other people who I think who have this real interest in the, in the sky and photography and landscapes to be able to really, uh, I think share this, both the passion for photography, but also the, the sky and, and, and astronomy. And cause I've been, uh, like I said, I've been ever since I was a kid, I've been interested in astronomy and as a photographer, it's kind of nice to combine the, the two interests of photography and, and astronomy and, and work on these night sky landscapes and, and kind of be able to share this alongside other people like, like yourself and then the other people with the astrophotography group. And so that, to me, that that's kind of what makes, well, New York city fun. And then of course we, we go out to Ashokan and, and a few of us have been on trips in other uh, uh, outside of New York city. And that, that that's always fun. Uh, but 
offhand, I think that's, I can think of that. That's a real, uh, uh, for me, uh, one of, one of the favorite parts of New York. Sure. Uh, and I feel, uh, privileged and honored to be able to call you not only a mentor, but a friend. So, uh, thanks for your answer, Stan. Sure. And, uh, that about wraps up our interview here. Th- Stan, thank you so much for the interview. I think this is probably going to be one of our more entertaining podcasts. Um, for those of our listeners who are not familiar with Stan's work, please, please check out his work at stanhonda.com. You can also see his work on Instagram at stanhonda. He's got incredible images, not only of rocket launches, but nightscapes, photos of New York and landscapes and um, everything else that he's done in his career. So Stan, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Maggie. So listening to this, I just couldn't help thinking how lucky Stan is to have been able to go to multiple shuttle launches. I mean, whether it's a space shuttle or any rocket launch from Cape Canaveral, it's truly a bucket list experience to go to one. Uh, I've done it, and I recommend it highly to anybody who hasn't been to Cape Canaveral. But um, in addition to being an amazing photographer, Stan is a great teacher as well. When you listen to this, he tells us which equipment to use and what camera settings. He was talking about F8 or F11, etc. But the way he does it, it's in passing, just as he's telling a story. He gives us really useful information, but in a very low-key way. I once took a course with Stan on solar photography, and it was chock full of all kinds of practical advice and knowledge. And he got me to the point where I was very happy with even my own photos. Yeah, so, you know, I've known Stan now for about five years. I've taken, I think, two classes with Stan, two or three. Um, I've been traveling with Stan. I've been camping with him out in New Mexico. The guy could not be more humble. I mean, who you listen to on this podcast is genuinely who Stan is as a human. He's always so quick to offer advice. He will tell you, you know, firsthand, don't go buy something new. Don't spend money on this. He'll tell you how to get the best results with what you have. And I couldn't feel more grateful for calling, being able to call the guy my friend. I couldn't agree more. But um, for our listeners, if you haven't seen, I mean, Stan doesn't only do uh, rocket launch or shuttle launch photography. If you haven't seen some of Stan's eclipse photos from multiple eclipses around the world, you're really missing something. Some of them are truly breathtaking. We'll post a link to his website in the show notes, and you really should check it out. Yeah, I mentioned this um, in the interview, but, you know, no harm in mentioning this again. Stan's website is just stanhonda.com, and his, uh, he's pretty active on Instagram as well, which uh, I think a lot of our listeners are probably active on that platform. So his Instagram is at stanhonda, just one word. Okay. And as you mentioned, he's got photos of eclipses. He's got um, photos of celestial objects from here in New York City, which I think people are always fascinated by. Um, a full run of the gamut. I just want to come back to a point that Stan mentioned concerning the choice of Florida for NASA's original launch center, given the state's propensity for bad weather, sometimes some really bad weather, fortunately not always. Uh, if weather were the only factor then they probably would have put the Kennedy Space Center in a place like Nevada or Utah rather than Florida with hurricanes. 
But there's a bigger reason why the launch center is in Florida, and it has to do with the physics of the Earth's spin. If you think about it, let's step back a minute. Every point on the Earth makes a full revolution in 24 hours, regardless of where you are on the Earth, a day is 24 hours. But if you're on the equator, because the circumference of the Earth at the equator is much larger than a latitude line, say, if you're in New York and you're, you know, it's just a greater distance. So because the time is the same and you're covering a much greater distance when you're at the equator, that means that you're traveling much faster through space at the equator than you are at a higher or lower latitude. So uh, that's why you want to place your launch site as close to the equator as you can because it gives the rocket, or the shuttle in this case, a bigger and faster push, if you will, to the, so less fuel is required to get to orbit. That's as long as you take off heading east, because the Earth rotates from west to east. So to get that push, you, you have to be heading eastward. And Florida is the southernmost point of continental U.S., the closest to the equator. So in spite of the weather, Florida was actually the perfect place to put uh, the launch center. See, this is fascinating to me. I did not know this point. Thank you so much for bringing this up, Stan. Um, I'm with Stan in, in just thinking in terms of weather. I mean, that's one place that's got to be worse than trying to photograph in New York in the summer with the humidity and the thunderstorms and whatnot. But that is truly fascinating. And I did not know that. So there you go, kids. Not only are you being coached on how to photograph National Geographic and APOD quality photos, you have Stan Furtick here to teach you physics lessons. All right, everyone. Now it's time for our AAA Sky Listener Challenge, where we ask you a question about a previous episode, and we award a prize to a winner selected at random from among all correct answers. Stan, do we have a winner from last time? Yes, we do. We asked you last month what prompted our chairman, John Bills, to start taking more pictures of the sky. And we do have a winner who will be receiving our famous AAA Sky hoodie made by Zazzle. It is Linda Mark who correctly said that what got John excited about astrophotography was an astrophotography class, which he took with no, none other than Stan Honda. Congratulations, Linda. No surprise there. So Stan, what's our listener challenge for today? Well, our question for today is, where is the smart telescope Stellina made? Great question. You can enter by sending your answer in an email to listenerchallenge, all one word, at aaa.org. Be sure to get your entry in by the deadline of midnight, December 10th, Eastern Standard Time to get that hoodie. Guys and gals, it's hoodie season. No need to be stealing your hoodie from your boyfriend or your husband or your significant other. You can win one for free for yourself just by showing us how smart you are. If you're not a member, stop by AAA.org to learn more about the AAA and how you can become part of it. Use the code AAASKY21 in one word, that's AAASKY21, to get a 15% discount on your first year membership dues. Everyone likes a little discount, so, you know, we're giving you a free hoodie, we're giving you a discount. Um, and if you want to contact us at any time, 
you can email us at aaasky, all one word, at aaa.org. Please keep your comments and suggestions coming. We'd love to hear from you guys. That's our show. Tune in next month to hear the return visit to AAA Sky of Bart Fried, telescope historian, who will tell us about the history of telescope making in New York. You're not going to want to miss that one. He was a favorite from last season. AAA Sky audio editing and original music by Preston Staley. Our technical producer is Parker Bossier. <laughs>